Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. We're, uh, we've, we've gone outside today, so if you can uh, hear birds and cars and uh, a dog in the background, it's because we're sitting in my garden. See, we thought it was, uh, and the reason we're outside is because we're imminently about to have a barbecue, which is, of course, the reason why it's raining. <laughs> yeah, it is. We've got a fantastic guest for you this week. We have Louise Gray, who wrote this book here, if you're watching this on YouTube, The Ethical Carnivore. Uh, we told you two weeks ago to go and get a copy so that this podcast would be even better for you. Um, and I hope you did. It's a really interesting read, and I think you'll find her views and where she's come from to take part in countryside pursuits, uh, hunting and fishing, really quite fascinating. I found it interesting. I learned a lot about meat production in this country. From yes, to her. and sort of the research we did prior to, yeah. uh, prior to doing the interview. It actually made me think a bit about meat choices. Yeah, it did. So that's who we have on. But of course, we have a competition winner from our competition two weeks ago, which was to win a pair of Smith Optics uh, shooting glasses, which I have here. And we have a winner, which we didn't actually select this No, we week. didn't. My... Uh a uh, good friend of mine who's a Navy diver who, in fact, I think was the third guest on this show. You can go way back in the archives now. He's standing behind the camera, and he picked the winner. So Chris picked it, not us. And uh, the winner is? John Seeley. So well done, John. He had a really cool picture taken from inside a surfboard, inside a wave. Yeah. Which was very cool. So this is what you win, a set of Smith Optics shooting glasses, and it was the ones with the interchangeable, interchangeable lens. Shoot us a mail, John, and we will get this out to you. Yep. We've got another competition, and it is to win two things, both from Hornady. We have a Hornady beer mug, or <laughs> you don't have to put alcoholic beverages in it. No, you don't. You can put non-alcoholic beverages. Uh, and you don't get the spaniel that's trying to lick it either. <laughs> a Hornady beer mug and a Hornady a ballistic range bands. You can wear these on your wrist, but I've also seen them just put around the, the butt of your rifle. And the idea behind the band is that once you have your um, cartridge calibrated to your specific rifle, you can write in either your drop in inches here or how many clicks you need to adjust your scope. So a nice convenient way to get your ballistics on your rifle, but not have them there fixed permanently because you can take the, the, the band off and stick it back on top of your gun cabinet. So those are the two things you can win this week. Yep. And we're not going to run a, a picture competition this week. And the main reason for that is we had somebody ask, are you always going to run picture competitions? Now, they're incredibly popular, which is why we've been using picture competitions. Yep. But we're going to try something different. And you don't know what it is. I do don't know what it is. I was hoping that while I was doing all that talking, no, I wasn't, you were I wasn't think even thinking about it. My mind was just completely blank while you are thinking about that. Uh, I think we should do just tag a friend underneath. Yeah, yeah. Simple well, as that. Uh, so so uh, yeah, so tag a friend underneath the the post that will have the picture of the, the prize you you can win. We won't exclude people. So if you do not have Facebook, all you do is just email us and we'll enter you into the competition and it'll also be on Instagram and all you have to do is just comment underneath the post. So everyone is covered. Done. Do we have another competition? We do. 
Uh, we have another competition which we we have been given a set of uh, well, a pair of tickets for the game fair, which is very soon actually. Yeah. It is in. You, you, I'm going to check end, so I don't get this wrong. It is end of July, 28th to the 30th of July. It is the game fair at Hatfield House. I won't be there. Uh, I might be there because I'm going to. Uh Festival, yes, you a music are. festival. Uh, but I think I'm going to be there. I'm undecided yet. Uh, if I can go, I will go. But we have a pair of tickets to give away. So if you want to win those, it's also going to be social media and it's going to be related to the game fair. So go and check out our um, Facebook and Instagram feeds. Either of the Facebook pages we have, the, the Pace Brothers or our yeah, podcast, and also Instagram, Pace underscore Brothers, and we'll do something which is related to the game fair. So just keep an eye out for it. And uh, But it's a great prize. Yeah. I, think it's four, I think they're 45 quid each is what the, the, the value is. So if you're going, it's definitely worth entering because you might very yeah. well be in with a good chance of winning. Mm-hmm. Anything else going on? No, I think that's it. I think we are going to do a show in two weeks or or so, which is going to be a catch up because we haven't done a catch up of news catch up news and what's going on with us and loads of other stuff that's been happening over the last few weeks because we've been at shows ourselves and we've had uh, some fantastic guests on that are better than us. So. Um, I'll just finish off by saying that uh, we, we wouldn't be able to bring you this podcast and bring you fascinating guests from around the world if it wasn't uh, from the support of our sponsors the Scottish Association if I can spit my words out for country sports who have uh, supported the podcast from day one Uh, if you're not a member of a hunting fishing countryside organization you should be go and check them out and you can go and check out their website just google um, SACS or the Scottish Association for Country Sports you'll find their website and all the details brand new website yes and the oh and yes oh, the other thing I was going to say and also the the companies who give us stuff to give away Hornady Caldwell uh, Bushnell go and check out their kit as well because uh, they also support the podcast yep they do I was going to say that if you want more reasons of why you should be joining an organisation listen to the previous podcast very good it's point the very relevant of all of the stuff that goes on in the background of all of the organisations mm-hmm. uh, that people don't realise and you should be joining in fact insurance should be the last reason why you're joining yes but also you should be having insurance at the same time yes you should but that was all covered yeah. in the show we did two weeks ago which was uh, live recorded at the Northern Shooting Show and the show that we are bringing you two weeks time will be uh, the second now. day yes will be the second day a whole new variety of guests whole new variety of topics yeah. and it's going to be a good one enjoy Louise, thank you very much for joining us on the Into the Wilderness podcast. We are going to find out, hopefully, a lot about you. And I have in my hand here your book, which I, I have consumed now. Good. Uh, before we get to, well, I mean, I suppose the, the book kind of touches on this a little bit. But before we really sort of get into this journey, tell us a little bit about yourself from early years so that we can kind of paint a picture of uh, who you are and who you were before you started this. Uh, okay, well, I'm a writer, but um, I um, I grew up, actually, I'm a farmer's daughter. I grew up in Essex, um, but my family are all from Scotland, so I've moved back to Scotland. And uh, I've been a journalist for the last 10 years, and I was working for the uh, Daily Telegraph uh, for the last five years as their environment correspondent. 
and um, I was a bit burnt out, frankly, because I was writing about climate change and uh, I had a few editors who didn't believe it existed. So it was slightly like banging my head against a brick wall. Um, but it was an amazing experience and um, I remain very passionate about the subject. It's a great newspaper. So when I moved on, um, I wanted to write about climate change, um, but it's tricky to make that interesting. So I was living in the Highlands for a year, pretty much only eating venison and wild food and uh, reading lots of interesting books like um, Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer, mm -hmm. which you might have read. And um, I started saying to people, I only eat animals, I kill myself. <sighs> and I didn't really mean it at first, but then um, it became apparent that uh, it was an issue people were really worried about. People don't know where their food is from. And I also realized it's really about climate change and a way to talk about climate change that people can understand because you're giving them power because uh, uh, the choices we make when we eat can affect the environment. So I realized it was a really accessible way to talk about climate change as well. So I decided to write a book about it. <laughs> but you, you spent quite a period of time not really eating any meat at all. Yeah, no, not really. Because, uh, yeah, I, 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 well, during the book, I ate very little meat, actually, because I was only eating animals I killed myself. And it was only 18 months in that I, uh, I'm giving it away, but I shot a red stag. Um, and um, so before that, you know, the occasional rabbit <laughs> isn't that much meat. So it's pretty much veggie that year. Um, and before that, I was what I call a blind omnivore. So I'd ate meat, but I didn't really think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I didn't, I wasn't um, a really passionate carnivore like some people are. Um, but I would sort of just have chicken or, you know, fish and not really think about it. Um, which is where I think a lot of people are. Um, and I was concerned about it, but um, I didn't want to be that person who starts, when you go to a dinner party, starts asking the hostess, you know, where's it from and, and, and be sort of rude and inconsiderate. So um, it took something quite extreme to change my behaviour. But I'm hoping that my book means that people don't have to do something so extreme, but they can have an understanding of where their meat comes from so that they can eat it in a better way mm. I, mean, I think that quite often people they actually don't really want to know because I think if they did know and we'll, we'll get into this uh, you know uh, once we get through the interview a bit but if they really knew where their meat was coming from I think that they know sort of deep down that they probably they wouldn't, wouldn't want to eat it yeah yeah it's really interesting you say that because lots of people said oh you know have you been targeted by vegan activists and I've had one or two but mostly I've had really interesting chats with vegan animal rights activists um and on the other end of the spectrum the attacks have been from people who love eating meat mm -hmm. and want me to shut up because they don't want to know so uh there's kind yeah, of interesting people who don't want to know on either end that, i think that's a little bit silly not wanting to know what the true <laughs> true source and, and impact of your meat is no it, it definitely that's definitely the case and and all the way through the book um i I tried to get supermarkets to, I mean, it's possibly, I wasn't that surprised, but um, when I went to big retailers and said, you know, I want to find out where your chicken's from, will you take me? They said, no, no, Louise, our customers don't want to know. That's because um, Rochdale Farm is actually in, not not in England, that's why. Yeah, um, it's a pretend farm. Yeah, it's a pretend farm. Yeah, um, there was that. And then they also, 
they argued that the, the customers didn't want to know, but I think it's <laughs> they don't want the customers. Yeah, they don't want the customers to know. Yeah, yeah, probably probably more of that and a little bit of the customers don't want to know. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you made me chuckle to myself there where you were saying I didn't want to be that person who asks the hostess where their meat comes from or their fish comes from. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, if it's if it's people that I, I know that I'm eating at their house, I would ask them that question. But uh, if I'm eating out, I invariably ask that question, especially if it's things like, even if I know that I'm not going to eat it, I kind of do it as a bit of a test with farmed salmon because I want to know if the restaurant knows which farm their salmon came from. And I know this is touched on in your book and we'll, we'll, we'll elaborate on it a little bit. But Yeah, but you're actually, you're so right about it. And I'm what I call a British vegetarian or I, well, I'm not vegetarian. I do eat meat, but... Um, I'm always too embarrassed to ask, but I'm getting better at it. And salmon's a really good example. Another one's free-range eggs. Like, uh, even at really posh restaurants, you get this sort of panic look in the waiter's eyes. <laughs> and and you're, you're being annoying, and often my, my you know, my um, boyfriend or whoever I'm eating with will be a bit annoyed with me, but I'm starting to try and do it more because I really feel like um, one thing I'm really passionate about is the consumer having power. And it's a small thing, but if you don't ask questions, then you're not forcing people to change. And the farm salmon's a really important one. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah, no, I mean, the point you make there is actually incredibly valid because if everybody did that and everyone made a point of being dissatisfied with an answer, they would change. Everybody would change. The supermarkets would change, the restaurants would change, and they would source their meat in a way that the consumers were happy to consume. Uh, and the, the farm salmon is a good example of that. If everybody asks those questions or stops buying uh, farm salmon from places where they know that it's having a negative impact on wild fish stocks, then things will change because the companies need to make money. Yeah. I, I think that restaurants and that that have a, a very good way of tracking their where their meat or fish comes from, it's actually a bigger selling point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Have you ever eaten at Tom Kitchens? No, I haven't. You live in Edinburgh and you haven't eaten at Tom Kitchens. No. <laughs> uh, I, I, I got, um, my girlfriend and I got a, um, a meal there as a Christmas present from her parents a couple of years ago. And we went there. And I, that was one of the things I loved about that place was that you sit down and on your menu there was like a map of Britain. And then all the produce that was on that menu, it showed you where it had come from. And it even named like the estate where the, the venison had come yeah. from. I really loved that aspect. Of well, it. it's an interesting thing I found during my research is um, when you go to these beautiful posh restaurants like Fred Burke Miller's um, in Edinburgh, Liscargo, they, um, Tom Kitchen, they'll tell you everything, where everything's come from. Um, and then if you ask an audience, you know, they'll say they only eat free-range chicken and they only eat free-range eggs. But... Uh, half the eggs we eat aren't free range and most of the chicken we eat isn't. So you're thinking, where where is this served? And interestingly, a lot of it is restaurants. And people said to me, it doesn't really, I mean, restaurants increasingly at the high end are um, uh, provenance is part of their sales. Yeah. So they, but, um, but towards, out of that, um, it's about money and costs, mm. and they're the ones getting some. You know, you can cook a, you can cook a chicken beautifully. It doesn't, you know. It, I say it tastes better, but Nigella Lawson admits that her mum used to always buy the cheapest chicken, and it tasted amazing. So, um, I think a lot of them do cut costs in that area. Well, it's if, a different if, business. If Nigella Lawson says <laughs> that that's true, then I believe her. But, yeah. but you, you also have to, uh, another thing of 
kind of uh, go back to the big retailers where they do advertise free-range chickens. And I used to work on chicken farms and stuff like that. And the free-range chickens, they're not really free-range. It's yeah. its kind of like a bit of a con. You know, yeah, they're allowed outside and they see the grass. and But they don't. But most the, of them don't want to go yeah, outside. Yeah, but they're not really free-range. It's, it's just one of these... Uh, obviously, there will be farms that are uh, doing it properly, but there's a large amount out there that are selling free-range products that... Really, uh, you could argue aren't free range. They're fulfilling the legislation yeah. that yeah. requires them, but it doesn't mean that they've yeah. got grass under their feet. Yeah. Um. So, getting into this sort of experience and uh, that's captured in your book, the first time that you actually took life yourself, tell me about that. Because well, a lot of people struggle with that if they've never been uh, sort of if it's not been part of their life and they don't have any friends who who do it. The idea of taking a life to eat, even though they may consume meat, is sometimes a difficult concept. Yeah, I think it's a difficult concept, whoever you are, even if you are brought up around people who shoot, which I was, and quite familiar with it, actually. But I came into it as an adult, and I came into it as a writer. So um, I was thinking about it a lot. But I actually think most individuals, if you think back to your first kill, uh, you know, it has a big impact on you and it'd be rather worrying if it didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I think everyone always asks me what's the worst moment. I think that's the worst moment because you have to take responsibility for that. There's no turning back. There's no one to blame. Um, and it is a life. So, um, and I get, you know, in the book, I accept that human eats, eats, humans eat meat and, um, I guess what I'm exploring is whatever we eat, there's an element of death and suffering and and how do we minimise that? How do we ensure that um, our choices on a wider scale don't harm the environment? But yeah, there is that just that that cold, hard fact mm. that you, you take an animal's life and you have to process that. And I think um, it's very interesting while I was writing the book, the number of people a lot of them older men who sort of took me aside and gave me this sort of emotional speech about something that they'd killed sometimes accidentally or when they were a child and they wanted to like get it off their chest so I think it's something that most people have to go through when they when they do this and and it, and it never really dies I don't think that um sense of responsibility you always have it no I mean I would say actually that uh, sort of every year or almost almost every day that I get older and the more hunting that I do, hunting and fishing, the more I contemplate the loss. Yeah. And uh, that definitely, uh, that's got more as I've got older. Yeah. And that is something that a lot of um, people said to me, um, a lot of men who I know who shot all their lives. And what's interesting is no one ever said to me, no one ever admitted to a bloodlust. I'd be rather worried if they did, and I certainly wouldn't go shooting with them. But um, they did say, I now find it more difficult, and suggested when they were younger men, there was more of an element of um, bravado, and uh, they found the killing easier. Um, and, um, you know, to explore that is another book, mm. probably about psychology. But it was just interesting that... Um, uh, what your experience, I can tell you for a fact, is going to get worse yeah. <laughs> um, from all the people I've interviewed. 
Yeah, no, I think you're probably right though, and I'm not sure quite why it is. Why is it? Why does it feel easier when you're younger? And I know exactly what you mean, and I think that is most definitely true. And I think probably it is just the if you think of any aspect of your life when you're that kind of age, you know, yeah. if you're when you're if you're in your late teens or yeah. early teens and, and you're hunting and shooting a lot, then even other aspects of life you're probably not really thinking about the true consequences as much as you do by the time you reach your your mid-20s that's just life yeah, um, yeah it's yeah. not and, doesn't mean that you don't care as much it's just that you don't realize you cared as much i think yeah. it's probably it's just i suppose the seven stages of man and uh, you're becoming more wise one mm. would hope <laughs> but talk, talk me through that that first experience as well because it was it was a rabbit that you first shot and i, I think it, it's quite a it's quite an interesting story that if you can just tell a little bit without giving away too much of what's in your well, I, I went along to um i went along to shoot rabbit with a gamekeeper i didn't know because i always wanted to do it with um uh to show that anyone can do this if you go and learn the skills and i'd done quite a lot of practice with with a rifle so um i was you know competent and safe and um but when i shot my first rabbit uh it was shot but it disappeared and um the gamekeeper was like you know it happens all the time don't worry about it and i felt awful so i went back and crawled around the woods looking for this rabbit and i found it and um that experience of thinking I'd got it wrong uh, taught me a lot because I think uh, when I said the responsibility earlier, you know, you know, there's always a there's always a chance it can go wrong. It, you're doing something quite risky and quite difficult, so it gave me a greater sense of that responsibility, um, and I found it quite upsetting as well because you know I felt bad for any suffering I'd caused. And then uh, everyone says, well, why, why would you continue doing it? But the people I was with um, weren't bad people and, um, and they were harvesting their meat in the countryside and I still found that um, a better way to get my meat than getting it from sources I didn't know. And it was difficult, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't give up on something. I felt like I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to learn those skills and 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 learn from those people so I continued even though that first experience wasn't straightforward but then it taught me something. Hmm. Um, what what of your friends at that point? I mean the, I imagine you probably, you probably had quite a lot of friends who had never done it themselves and yeah. maybe had mixed emotions and, and opinions about whether you should be doing it. What was your conversations like over coffee well, about what Interestingly, you were doing? so uh, my male friends who lived in the city were fascinated. You know, they were quite hungry to know. Like, I think they clearly, and this is something your guys um, are tapping into very much and something you must be familiar with, is they felt something was missing in their lives or they felt um, a longing to go out and experience those things. So they were fascinated. They couldn't get enough of it. Um and my um, other friends, you know, male and female, who, who didn't feel that, were still interested. And I was really surprised at the positive reception I got. I've met very few people who were um, against me doing it, especially those who ate meat were like, well, I think you should if you're going to eat meat. But then, and a lot of them said, oh, well, I couldn't do it myself. Um, and then they sort of felt guilty, but I don't think you should have to do it yourself 
if you want to eat meat, but you should be willing to ask questions and understand. So I generally got a positive reception. I mean, there were a few people who just said that's terrible and you shouldn't do that, mm. obviously. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a fair point. It's, it's something we, we bring up quite a lot, uh, which is that we are never suggesting that everybody should uh, go out and kill their own meat if they're a meat eater. But it does mean that you should you should still feel that you have um, a responsibility to the meat. Whether yeah. you feel like you can t- do it yourself is, is another question. That's no problem. You might require somebody else to do it for you. But then you have to think very hard if you criticize people um, who are prepared to go and take a life themselves to put meat on the table. You see it all the time online. Mm. Of people that plainly meet, eat meat, criticizing someone for hunting their own meat, and they have no idea what they're eating in the first place. So it's just taking the time to understand. Yeah, yeah, and I accept that some people are too sensitive to uh, do it, and also I think it's rather silly to say everyone should do it because it takes a huge. I mean, I did it for you know two years, only eating what I killed myself. I learned an enormous amount, but I'm still learning. I mean, it really was only the beginning and I didn't do that much because I couldn't because all these things are really difficult skills and things you've got to take really seriously. So um, it's not something you can do easily or I think as a Mm one-off. So it wouldn't be practical for someone, everyone to do it anyway. If we turn that sort of wild meat experience, and we'll talk a little bit more about wild meat later, um, to the other side, which is the, the very much the commercial. I know that you, you took the time to go and visit a number of, of slaughterhouses. Yeah. Uh, that is something that, that probably even fewer people uh, than those people who have experienced hunting and taking life have actually seen inside. I mean, I, I, yeah. I've i seen kind of around the periphery, but I've never done a walkthrough of a slaughterhouse. So I, I, I would, think I'd find it quite hard, actually. Yeah, I, I mean, I know from the videos I've yeah. seen, I think I'd find it quite hard. Mm. Can you, I mean, describe it in as much detail as you can on that? Because I think it's something that people should hear, if not see themselves. I think most people would find it quite hard. And they might be surprised that you guys would, since, you know, you you go hunting and you uh, are familiar with that world. But I think if you go through as a person to see what's happening, it's a really difficult experience because um, it's a place where lots of animals are killed. There's There's no way to make it. Um, um, palatable or nice. It's a pretty uh, difficult place. And when I went in to write about it, I went in as a sort of super sensitive writer trying to explain and make sense of everything. And it really, you know, shut me down um, for months afterwards. I was pretty um, traumatised by it. But having said that, you know, I think you guys would be okay if you went in as part of an agricultural student group. You know, if you put that kind of head on and understand that you're trying to understand where your meat, how your meat is processed as part of a job. And it was a little bit similar to the rabbit, like, why did I do it again? Well, because the farmers I was talking to, who I admired so much, who were raising meat in sustainable ways and um, I think managing our countryside in a good way, that's part of their business. So if you're going to judge whether they should be able to continue or not, you have to look at that as part of their business. And I always felt the book as a whole, I was going to look at that because I just felt as a journalist, you can't write about wild meat. I mean, it's all very well for you guys, but most people can't get their hands on that. So I wanted to give them the answers of where 
their ordinary meat came from. And the fact that no one else, no one had done it much sort of encouraged me more as a writer because I just thought, well, this is an important subject that someone needs to look at. Hmm. Uh, and how did you, I mean, you were obviously seeing a lot of, uh, you know, animals walking through the abattoir system while you are there. I mean, just, maybe just describe that a little bit because I think that's the one thing is uh, looking at animal reactions to the noises and, you know, it's not a particularly pleasant environment inside there. It's kind of claustrophobic yeah. almost. No, I mean, a layerage should be a really calm place. If it's not, then the farmers won't use that abattoir, you know, um, a good farmer, which, you know, most farmers are. Um, an abattoir should be a really calm place. And the ones I saw generally were, you know, Pigs should be able to fall asleep, you know, that the, the layerage, that's the place before uh, they go into the abattoir. So that should be a calm place. But then once you're in, uh, the killing's very fast as possible. And then it's this m massive industrial machine and very difficult to look at um, because it's, you know, the visually and the smell and the sounds are all quite shocking to a sensitive um modern human you know i think i think in the past people saw that happening in the marketplace and so they were used to seeing animals chopped up and stuff so it's really um a very visceral shocking experience to see that so that's another reason why i don't think everyone should do it because um most people just come out upset and shocked because that's what it is that's how your meat comes from mm. um uh, um but it's a job as well. A lot of people are working there. Something that really concerns me are the rights of the workers. You know, it's a really difficult job and lots of people suffer from a lot of industrial um, uh, issues around injury and stuff. So um, we have to think about if you're going to eat meat, you know, to pay more for it so those people are paid well and uh, because that's how your meat's going to get produced. That's where it comes from. Mm. That's why I wrote it because <laughs> that, that's what people need to know. I, mean, I, I, I doubt anybody's going to suggest that uh, you know we should try and pull back and remove that form of agriculture because, well, for one thing, it's completely unviable with the, popu the human population that we have. In fact, <laughs> yeah, a lot of people suggest it. Well, I mean, I, I think that's probably a, how, how realistic and a, maybe a grasp on the consequences of our actions as, as humans on the planet. But I think it from the research that I've done, uh, not not related to this interview, but sadly it's quite often the case that actually the worse the animal welfare, the better it is for the environment as a whole. Um, but how did you compare that experience, that sort of in, um, mass agricultural experience to the wild experience that you'd had at that point and then the experiences that you had later on, sourcing meat from wild sources as opposed to, to farmed agricultural sources and knowing the process that they went through? Well, um, I'll tell you what really made me want to eat free-range pig. And it wasn't seeing pigs with their tails docked in, you know, in pens with nothing to root through. I mean, that was, they looked bored and, uh, and, it, and I didn't like to see pigs that sort of in, you know, in such close spaces. But when you see a pig rooting around outside, it's such a natural um, thing for a pig to be doing. It really makes you um, want all pigs to have that experience. That was like more, that, that convinced me more um, than seeing the factory farm, strangely. Um, 
So, and also that's something that lots of people can see if they go out to, you know, um, open farm Sunday or, uh, try and you know uh, or even something like gorgie city farm if you live in a city that's a much more accessible way and a positive way to to help people make their minds up which i think is they're more likely to do um so um and also i question what you said about you know if the animal welfare worse then it's better for the environment i mean i, I think what you're referring to is like the un have done big reports saying that factory farm chicken and pigs are much lower co2 yeah, well, I was going to get onto sort of carbon footprint, but uh, yeah. yeah, that's what I was referring to. Like chicken, for example, yeah. is a good example of that. And 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 I'm sure in some studies that that's true, but you've got to think about lots of different factors. Um, you know, they, and welfare is is one of them, and disease is another one, and um, and I think there's a sense of conscience and philosophy for humans. You know, how far can we push our relationship? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, but and and the answer comes down to less meat mm -hmm. um i think if you're going to um if i'm going to argue you know you want your pig rooting around you've got to pay more for your pig yeah um and um and i found i looked at it quite the other aspect of your question was how does it compare to wild meat i looked at them quite separately because i felt like um i couldn't really compare them i mean i um personally enjoy eating wild meat because it tastes better it does, like, yeah rabbit is delicious um but um but i do but i don't eat it that often i mean there's actually quite a lot out there but you know it's never going to be something um in our current current environment that we're able to eat a lot of so i think i think i think of it as two different food groups really you also spent some time in a halal slaughterhouse mm. no i didn't go to a halal did you not go to one no i interviewed i, I saw halal being sorted in Morocco. Oh, okay, my mistake. So it happened, and um, I interviewed uh, uh, the people uh, halal, um, uh, the association that ch checks it and keeps it halal. Mm -hmm. um, most lamb, um, incidentally, in this country is halal because we have to export so much to the Middle East, um, and uh, but most of it is stun halal, so it's actually no different. Um, except for a prayer, um, then, well, theologically, there's lots of other differences, which I try to explain in the book. But yeah, I felt like that was an important issue to look at because it's a growing sector of the meat market and the food that we're eating in Britain. I mean, what was your take on that when compared to non-halal traditional um, slaughtering processes uh, from an well, agricultural standpoint? Um, I interviewed a vet, and the vet is in the centre of that chapter, and the vet says non-stun is cruel mm -hmm. so the vet says pretty uh emphatically what the veterinary practice think so i don't think i need to say what my opinion is because mm -hmm. um well my, a, a vet states what the facts are about non-stun so non-stun is not knocking the animal out beforehand yeah they're, bl they're bled while they're yeah, conscious that's about 20 percent. but i didn't i tried to i looked at it sympathetically because I have eaten halal meat um, when I was staying with a family in Morocco and they slaughtered a sheep on the roof as everyone did because it was the end of Eid and then every part of the animal was eaten and shared amongst the family and I was a guest of honour and I was given that and I uh, took it with gratitude. So 
it's a little bit of an it's that's a joy in writing a book you can be complex mm-hmm. and halal is com- complex and I guess I'm a great believer in the British value of freedom of religious well religious freedom so I think um whilst um not so having said that uh, the British Veterinary Association's view on non-stun is a fact they think it's wrong and I think in a factory uh, environment I would like to see it change but I think that's got to come from the community themselves but and so that discussions that discussion is happening I, I wrote that chapter for my Muslim friends who are concerned about where their meat comes from so they want to know as well hmm. and I think then they can make those decisions I, I think there is there's a a large amount of people that consume halal meat either they know or they don't know but um, I've consumed a massive amount because in the military nearly all the meat is halal you have no choice of course yeah a lot of big you know like um, uh, I don't want I don't want to name names without double checking but a lot of big fast food restaurants in the UK would serve halal meat because it's easier because then if customers come in um, they know that's the case but um, most of it is stunned so it's not any different um but the the non-stun is um a concern but i don't i i and there is a call for it to be banned or to be labeled um i think there should certainly be more information so that people can make those decisions and i think uh yeah buying meat people need to know how to um labeling would be good um but non-stun, stun labelling is not going to happen anytime soon. But if you're aware of um, um, organic or free range, there are lots of labels which would only be stun. Mm. Um, I think red tractor as well. So you can still um, you can still be aware of where it happens. I think personally, it's quite distasteful that there hasn't been more information about it out there because there are a lot of people eating halal meat and at this point you don't really know whether it's stun or non-stun and I think a lot of people would be pretty annoyed if they actually knew that but the information is simply not out there and I think that if it didn't have uh, the religious um, controversy with it that it would have been if it had been any other food issue it would have been dealt with a long time ago Um, so I take the personal quite a strong exception to not it not being really easy to know how my meat has been killed in that way because you assume and the vast majority of public in this country would assume maybe not now because it's become a little bit more it's been in newspapers and there's been articles about it but would assume that nothing has changed they wouldn't realize that the vast majority of the lamb in this country although you know as as you've clearly stated most of it is um is stunned so there's not a great deal of difference but i think people have the right to know and i don't think we've been very good at pushing uh or the food labeling has not been very well at pushing that yeah well i've tried i've tried to give people all the facts in that chapter um and um but i didn't i don't think it's i don't think that you're going to be looking at labeling non-sun labeling anytime soon so i've tried to tell you the labels that you can look out for Mm -hmm. that show that it's done so um and if you're being careful about your meat choices then um you can avoid it but i do think the conversation has to be within the muslim community and, and driven by that because it's very difficult to impose uh, uh, beliefs on other people. But, but uh, well, that, you could turn that on its head, though, because there could equally be people who don't. I mean, just because if you 
I don't want to get into a massive religious debate, but yeah. if, if people are non-Muslim uh, believers, they equally have a belief. And they might not, and that part of that might be that they, why should they have to eat halal meat? Well, I, I think the prime example is when I was in the military, um, I've got a, a Muslim friend as well. And when I was in the military, I did not know a single Muslim person. There are, obviously there is, there is, there is people, but not, not anyone that I ever knew. And yet we all ate halal meat. So why, why we, and we have no choice. If, if I went to someone and said, I'm not eating that meat, I would be given absolutely no choice. They went, well, I'll then starve then. But if it was probably the other way around, then there's a reason why they've given everyone halal meat. Maybe they should have more vegetarian options. The oh, they do have vegetarian options. They do. Uh, but saying that, I it was disgusting. So, <laughs> what, what choice I mean, do you have? Uh, we Maybe. don't have we don't have the, most of that problem most of the time because no. a lot of the stuff that we eat, we kill ourselves or our <laughs> friends kill. So it's not it's not on my no. mind a lot. But I think it, yeah. My, my point is that I think it should be discussed more than it is. Just the same as we should be concerned about where the actual meat comes from and the welfare of the animals that the meat comes from. We should also be concerned about how it's killing. And we should be. We I think we, I believe that we have the right to know. And the fact that it hasn't been clearly labelled is, you know, it's been highlighted and, and you give yeah. uh, the facts that are available yeah. in your book, which is great. Well, I also wanted to make that chapter, you know, I'm living through a time where there's a lot of conflict. And I wanted to make that chapter about trying to understand mm. people because mm. I thought if I'm going to write something, it's going to be out there in the world. I want it to contribute to understanding each other, not driving us further apart. And I feel you're right, but I think the discussion needs to bring in both sides more at the moment because sometimes it's been led by you know quite angry articles in the media which i'm not sure they're helping mm -hmm. yeah no there's uh as with most, th most things you need to find some sort of middle ground yeah um moving on from uh, meat to fish now your sort of fishing experience and, and the one thing that I, I wanted to sort of draw out from you is something that we've discussed a couple of times before is the, the idea of fishing and obviously eating what you catch, but also catch and release. And you talk about catch and release and why you would want to do that. So maybe just tell us a little bit about your fishing experience and what, what it was like. You well, know, mostly I did catch and release because I'm not very good at fishing and <laughs> catching really small ones. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to... I'm not going to keep little, little brown trout. They want to get bigger. Mm. Um, and... I tried to get a salmon, but if I had, I probably would have had to release that as well, wouldn't yeah. I? Because especially if it was a hen. Um, and uh, um, I actually, you know, the fishermen in Scotland, as far as I'm aware, are pretty good at catch and release yep. of, um, sure. of salmon. So that's not the issue of where the salmon are all going or what's happening to them. It's about the fish farms and climate change and overfishing. So, um, uh, I, but I really enjoyed fishing as an experience because it brings you so close to nature and uh you know it's been written about by lots of wonderful writers that sense of uh communing with nature on the riverbank because you have to understand what's happening to catch a fish mm. you know you have to think about uh life under the water and where the fish might be and what they're feeding on and that's um that's and you have to be quiet and still and that's all um a lovely experience so um i enjoyed fishing and it was an aspect of of sourcing your own meat that brought me closer to nature but like I said it's a little bit like the meat issue you know you can occasionally get a wild fish um, from a where there's a population or where the fish have been stocked 
Um, but most of us are getting our fish from the oceans and the oceans are being overfished. So, um, again, it's about knowing our facts and trying to make decisions about uh, more sustainable, um, um, well, fish stocks, which fish stocks where there's enough for us to eat, um, um, which means looking at different species and looking for certain labels. Yeah, no, what, what you say about being on the riverbanks completely true. I was actually, two nights ago, I was fishing with my friend up on uh, the upper reaches of uh, one of the glens here. And the day after, I couldn't join him because I had to go and work. And he's a man of leisure. So uh, he sent me a picture of a fly sitting on, on, the, on the handle of his reel. And in the background, there was a massive hatch going on. And what I was excited about was not the fact that he had caught a couple of fish that evening. It was the fact that they had, I had, well, what I was excited but also annoyed about was that I had missed this amazing hatch of insects. And that was the thing for me that I was most fascinated with, not actually what he had been catching. Yeah, yeah. It's something I learned quite quickly. It's not about the fish, it's about the insects and mm. what's happening. Yeah, so um, uh, I very much enjoyed that. And I think it's uh, quite a straightforward way to for people to connect with the environment, which is a lovely, very positive, you know. Um, and fishermen generally look after the environment. A fish legal is a very successful environment organization that goes around suing people for polluting rivers. And I mm -hmm. think if they weren't around and supported by fishermen, then there'd be a lot more of it going on. I mean, how do you, um, how do you reconcile the, what you said about catch and release, especially mm -hmm. with regard to migratory fish and salmon in particular is, is very true. We have a very high catch and release rate in Scotland. I mean, how do you reconcile that though? Because when you're, when you're hunting, you go, you pull a trigger, you kill something, you eat it. Whereas a lot of people are fishing and um, they are catching and releasing. Now, if I just qualify that to start with, when you were saying that you're putting back a lot of small fish. Now, the, the target is never those small little trout. You're not actually fishing for those. Those are sort of a, a byproduct that you pick up by mistake almost. And so you carefully you know, unhook them, preferably with barbless hooks, and you, and you put them back to grow another day and maybe you'll be able to eat them in a few years' time. But a lot of it is catch and release. So how do you reconcile that? sort of in your head well i mean every fisherman says they don't go fishing to eat the fish they go fishing to fish mm -hmm. <laughs> so um so you're not i don't think i'm expecting to get um necessarily a huge amount of food from 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 fishing um in the in the rivers that i'm fishing in and with the skills that i have frankly <laughs> so um so yeah I, I i don't really mind catch and release um it's a nice uh, it's still a nice afternoon on the riverbank. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. It's absolutely if lovely. If want to eat loads, I'll go mackerel fishing in the season and I can get like a bucket of 20 in 20 mm. minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, you can get plenty of fish that way, that's for sure. Um, carbon footprints and food. Now, this is some, I've done a little bit of research into this because it was something that fascinated me because of this, maybe the probably the misunderstanding from meat eaters about how certain meat has much higher footprint, uh, carbon footprints on it and impact on the environment. But equally, uh, the, the non-meat eating um, public who probably also don't understand that some of what they eat in particular can have re a really high impact on the environment. So what, what was the, the research that you did there and the sort of conclusions that you came to from that? Well, it was a, a big factor in choosing to write the book in the first place because I was aware of uh, statistics that show there's more emissions from livestock than there is from all the world's transport put together. And there's lots of questions around those 
those statistics. So some people say, you know, emissions from livestock are up to 50% of carbon emissions. And some people say it's as low as 10. It's whether you, uh, there's so many different factors involved. Are you including water or deforestation and uh, the, the types of animals you're looking at? But um, it's pretty incontrovertible that uh, emission, livestock do cause a lot of emissions. So that's one of the reasons I started writing the book, that if you if we want to do something about bringing our carbon emissions down um, uh, and limiting limiting climate change in the future, then we have to eat less meat. So it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And um, uh, if you look at it sort of bluntly, you could say cattle are the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, I think it definitely depends on where you are in the world. You know, in the Scotland and Britain as a whole, there's a lot of areas where uh, you can only really grow grass. And a great way to convert their grass to protein is to graze cattle on it. And then you're also maintaining um, pasture, often pasture that's never been ploughed up, which is a good carbon store. Mm-hmm. So um, there are so there are arguments that you can, you know, that some some forms of beef are actually quite good for the environment. Um, but there are so many studies and you can get quite hung up on them and but it's really pretty simple eat less meat <laughs> and um and you but but in this country you can you can um buy meat from farmers who are uh, pasture fed pasture fed animals which are maybe contributing to um helping not only the the landscape and wildlife um, but perhaps a carbon store by giving a farmer incentive to um, to to keep up pasture. So it's a complicated picture, but um, I think that there is a place for meat in certainly in certain places in the world. Mm, yeah, no, I, I, it's, a, it's a good approach to have that, which isn't just the sort of blanket approach of well reductions everywhere, because as you say, there are circumstances where it can be benefit. I would say though that uh, just the statement of eat less meat probably isn't. I I wouldn't believe would be true for the overall impact because, and I know not everybody can do it, and we've been talking about that probably from when we started the interview until now, but. I uh, I actually sort of concluded an article on this topic just recently, which was that my I probably eat and my brother probably eats and our family probably eat more much more meat than the vast majority of people in this country and certainly well above what the average is because we can. Yeah. But the imp- our impact because we are lucky enough to be able to source the vast majority of it from wild sources. Quite possibly, although I haven't done the maths on it, but if you just think about the logic of um, habitat management and population management and overgrazing that could come from the activities that we're doing, would actually have a net positive impact. And in actual fact, by reducing our meat intake from wild sources, could have the opposite impact. What we're we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think I think there are definitely. Uh Different courses, different horses yeah, to use. But um, I, I've tried to say, in the I think the reason why I've sort of um, promote this rather blunt message, eat less meat, is, you know, I did start this book, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, with a view to doing something useful about climate change, mm-hmm. because I've sat in an office interviewing scientists about what's going to happen for a long time, and I, I want to see something done about it. And I think globally um, it will definitely help. But there are definitely um, 
circumstances for different people and I think people get you know argue about statistics but really just look at your own life and make your own decisions and there was a great moment when I was interviewing um, a lady called Caroline Wheatley Hubbard and she raises um, these beautiful um, uh, ginger pigs um, Tamworth Mm -hmm. and um, I was talking to her and I was saying you know people need to eat less meat and you know there's this new UN study but you know you know that shows about the health and but but you know it's fine we can eat bacon, just not every day. And she said, well, I eat bacon every day. Of course she does, because she raises these tamworths <laughs> two times a day. And she's really healthy. And um, that's I don't think she's doing anything bad. You mm. see what I mean? She's yeah. just living in her circumstances and her environment. And you that's know, the key. Have... I think what you've just said there is the key. Yeah. Um, and... Um, it, it come. It, it, it's a big question when you look at the industry because I think arguably you could probably raise chicken in Brazil where you don't have to heat them, and it's cheaper and it's um, possibly better for the environment because you're using less energy. Mm. Um, and uh, but uh, as we saw with the horse meat scandal, when you have long supply chains of meat, things go wrong. So then you bring in the other factors you care about and make the decisions about what you want to eat. Well, we, we had a, this is months ago now, a uh, discussion about the increase of insects being used for protein because of the energy consumption is great when you put yeah. it into insects. Um, and Yeah, well, I mean, it's something you touch on. Yeah, certainly, yeah. Even, even for animal feed. Yeah. Mm. And insects taste quite good because after we did that podcast, actually, we got sent a whole bunch of uh, insects I, I, to eat. Yeah, um, yeah, they are. I, I've eaten some, and I, I still kind of I give them out at talks and stuff, and, <laughs> um, and uh, they're, they're quite good bath snacks. And I think you'll see them a lot because you know there's all this protein stuff, all this paleo stuff. Yeah. Mm. I think you guys can probably talk about paleo, but I think the most guys I know who live in the city, I just think really like yeah, you're going to have to have a lot of money if you're going to eat that much steak. And I think. <laughs> I would be I would be broke if I had to um, eat the amount of meat in the city. I did, yeah, in the city. So they but they want to pump iron or whatever. They want to be really muscly, so they have to get their protein from somewhere. Insects, yeah. Let them eat crickets. Crickets aren't bad, actually. What was the one? Locusts aren't great. No, locusts were not good. No. Um, the leg um, gets stuck in your teeth, though. Yeah, yeah. It was mealworms. It was mealworms. a whole variety of mealworms. Yeah, wax, I don't, I don't like the mealworms. No, no you, think... you need to put a little bit of seasoning on them. That's the key. No, this is something too. <laughs> it's not something I put on my dinner every night. I have to say, but <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think you're right though. We, we said it before. We will start to see more of it. I think it'll become one of those little niche things. I, I think whoever makes it cool to eat insects, that'll be where it starts. I, I think it'll grow, but I don't think it'll ever be huge in this country. And I also think plant protein alternatives that like we're already seeing it will grow, and and that's that makes sense, you know, because cheap protein um that's it, it is is something valuable something we need and we we can get it from animals but actually it's quite a difficult way to get it from animals if you really think about it you know we have a lot of science at our fingertips now so i think that you'll see more um uh, more plant proteins available as well you know well we had the first genetically grown burger not that long ago didn't we? in the lab yeah yeah, uh, well, the um, you mean the stem cells? The stem cell, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't really like that idea personally. But <laughs> you vegans said they would have said that they would eat 
uh, in vitro meat, so meat grown from stem cells. Mm. It's a, it's a kind of a, I, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, to be honest, but it, it's kind of a, a, a weird concept, the idea of just growing this, what, what is, as far as science is concerned, meat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you see, I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't have a rational reason for it it's just uh yeah it's trying to get your head around it I'd rather eat some tofu frankly <laughs> yeah. and then you know save up and have steak you know every once a month or something you know um you also looked into fast food a bit uh a fast food uh, in, as far as food in the industry goes is probably the thing that people pick on the most as being the worst example but that is not really what you found so, well, I mean, I, I looked at McDonald's and um, it was really interesting. I remember being in the, they wouldn't let me record and stuff because they're very cautious of journalists because they've got into trouble before. But I managed to get a chat with them and I remember, uh, and they sat me down and were telling me all the all the beef is British or Irish. It does include old dairy cows, that's worth remembering, and it's the forecant flank and forequarter. Um, but they were saying, you know, these are all free range, these are all... Um, well, um, British, which means they'll mostly be free, free range. We do sometimes bring, obviously in Scotland, they're in for the winter. Yeah. And um, if barley's really cheap, some farmers will be doing that. But it's pretty rare. And, um, and I remember saying, that how? How are you keeping the price down? And just the scale. When you're making three million burgers a day, you can do that. So if I was, if, if you were in McDonald's, I'd be more worried about what's in, your bur- in the bun. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Three and million also, burgers a day. Wow! When they when they um, when they did the ho- when the horse meats after the horse meat scandal, there was a big report, and McDonald's was held up as having a really tight supply chain. So um, I think that's because they've got a lot of money and they're slightly ahead of the curve of what needs to happen in uh, uh, meat supply. I mean, but I wouldn't. It's up to you if you want to eat McDonald's. I'm just telling you where it comes from. Yeah. But, um, um, but I was surprised by that. But I still think, um, and they do, they've been targeted by people like Compassion in World Farming um, and the RSPCA, who will probably say that they're pretty good now because as charities, they've made quite a lot of progress um, with companies like that and where their meat comes from. So it's surprising. I think uh, your parcels come. Yes, it has. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that... Um, I think that uh, it's possibly the bigger companies. The the I don't know. I just don't want to give McDonald's too much. No, I mean no. I I just still it's still a lot of it is dairy cows, mm. and you know I didn't go into dairy. I didn't have enough room in my book yeah. for what the dairy cows, but you know, um, so um, that's a concern. Yeah, I suppose that's probably a, probably a dis- uh, the whole uh, the dairy sector is probably a discussion in itself. But. Barley beef does happen as well. It just depends on the price of barley. So then they would be kept indoors, and you know, and it's still an animal. I mean, that's what's at the heart of my book, really. Is mm. you know how how many you know it's an animal's got to die for you to eat that. So it's still it's still a big um, uh, it's still a, a beef burger from mm. a cow. So <laughs> um, just go. I just want to step back to to fish farming, um, which we, we kind of just touched on as we were going through this. Yeah, what your, was your you... video on it is excellent. Yeah. Say again, sorry. Your video on it is excellent. Oh, right? thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a fascination in uh, in that aspect for a long time because I love to fish. Yeah. Uh, I actually sit on the Esquivers and Fisheries Trust, so a lot of the work that we do is 
how can we make our river systems better to provide a better environment for the migratory fish to do what they do, which is survive and spawn and create lots of uh, little fish to turn into smolts to head back to the sea. Yeah. You know, what happens in the sea is, uh, you know, another discussion because we don't yeah. truly know with regard to salmon what's happening them when they're way out at sea feeding. Isn't that amazing? All the things we know. We, I know. In a space, <laughs> but we don't know what the salmon are up to. It's crazy. <laughs> But what was your what was what was the, your reading and, and investigation and where did you end up with with yeah. farm salmon in particular? Because it, right now it's actually very topical. It's been talked about a lot in the last few months. Sure. I mean, um, when I first looked into it, like a lot of people, uh, when you start thinking about it, about you know tens of thousands of cat salmon in a cage, um, about the sea lice problem that's, uh, you know, really bad in most cages and is dropping off onto wild, onto wild salmon and sea trout. Uh, the pollution from uh, the dung from all the salmon at the bottom of our lochs. Um, you think, this can't be right, it's bad for the environment, right? Mm. You know, it's very hard to think when you look at the facts of salmon farming and what, what it's doing to wild populations to think it's okay. And then I went up to the Highlands and everyone said to me, ah, oh, but Louise, the jobs and the economy. And, you know, as an environmental journalist, you're very used to that. You know, everyone says mm. that, you know, sure. But so I was quite suspicious of it and thought, well, that's not, and doesn't sound like an excuse. But then you go to somewhere like Malag and I, where the salmon are processed. And um, it used to be a fishing port and all the fishermen now are employed there. And there are islands where people are voting for salmon farms to come in so I tried to look at it so then I started looking at it a bit more closely because I thought uh the economic there is an argument there is an argument for livelihoods and economics as far as I can see I, can, I don't think I can uh deny that I'm seeing that for myself not just from the company and I went to visit marine harvest farms and what it, it is changing it's it's too late in some places you know the sea trout have gone and the salmon are suffering um, and it's interesting when you look at Norway where the government in Norway have been much more tough with the salmon farms and said you can't go in the mouth of rivers and uh, you can't stock that densely and smolts can't be in freshwater locks and in Scotland we didn't do that we rolled over for a multi-million pound business well multi-billion probably and um as a consequence, our environment has suffered. And I think um, if we're going to continue to have this industry in Scotland, then it's got to be much better regulated. Yeah, I, I think you, you've you've kind of summed up where yeah. we need to go with that. I mean, yeah. I, I, there, is a, there is definitely a place for salmon farming. There's no question about that. And I think that if done right... And okay, there is a slight question about the, the chemicals that, that they use and yeah, the antibiotics what's actually, yeah, and stuff. antibiotics and what's actually in the meat. But I think that is something that can be dealt with, and I think it's something that would be dealt with a lot easier if it was in closed containment on land, which would then remove the vast majority of the problems. But it's just a case of we need to, as, as Scotland and the UK, be far more sympathetic to the impact that these fish farms have had on the natural environment, which is exactly as you say what what Norway yeah. have done. And, and it's the biggest food export from Britain, the biggest food export. That's huge. And the companies are Norwegian and Russian, um, very few Scottish companies. And our governments 
uh, as the Scottish government, you know, in remote areas with all that jobs and money, they 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 have rolled over rather. So they need to get it under control. But the big question, it comes down, it's a lot of the, again, do you want to pay more for your salmon? Mm. Because, uh, well, frankly, probably marine harvest could make less money. Um, maybe they should make less money and we should have the salmon cheaper. But, you know... Um, I don't know. I think that I suspect then that might also be an issue because something we haven't also talked about is the food for the salmon. Yes, so salmon, of course, yeah. salmon are these the these migratory predatory fish. Yet that's what we farm. Isn't that peculiar? Yeah. Why why don't we farm a fish that's vegetarian and doesn't migrate? Because people uh, like, like to eat salmon, <laughs> like the Chinese do. Yeah, mm. you know. So um, um, so um, I think um. I, I, that's another issue is that the, the food coming from places like Peru where there's a lot of overfishing. Um, and like at the end of my chapter on salmon, I talk about GM salmon. Mm. And I just, for me, I just think, you know, you don't get to start creating giant genetic salmon until you can prove that you can fish them sustainably, that you can farm them sustainably. And, um, and there's recirculation plants and a lot of potential. So, um, I would hope that would start happening. So perhaps the consumer can make a difference. And there's something called the Aquaculture Stewardship Council label, which is coming in, which will give, I think, consumers a bit more, um, a better option. Because at the moment, it's very hard. Unless you like to do it, you can understand where the different salmon farms are. Yeah, exactly. If someone gives you the name of a salmon farm, even if they are able to tell you which the vast majority are not, how are you going to make a judgment on whether that's impacting the environment or not? You're you're not. Marine harvest say all their farms are going to be ASC by 2020, but um, that's not very far away. No. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I think that the economic <clears throat> argument is, uh, in terms of the, the consumerism, <clears throat> is a valid one. But I think it's becoming less of a <clears throat> less of an issue as the technology improves. I know that the most recent information that I could get was that we're almost at the the tipping point now, where if you're doing it for the long term which most of these uh, fish uh, fish farm companies are, the economics is almost the same. Yes, there's a big capital output to get closed containment on land, but in the long term with the reduction in the, the chemicals and feed and the recirculation of water, you're actually going to end up with you know, basically back to where you started in, in terms of the cost to produce a unit of a unit of salmon. So hopefully the, the technology is getting to a point where that becomes a non-argument now. Uh, and uh, not forgetting the the escapees because they still don't truly know what the genetic crossover is going to be good with, with the escape the escape salmon. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's um a tricky issue, and I think it was worth mentioning as well. You know, salmon is one of the top five fish we eat. There's mm. a lot of other options out there. <laughs> there uh, I I eat very very little salmon mainly due to that fact of. Of I'm probably quite well educated in in the topic, but yet if I went to a restaurant and like Byron just said, and they told me where the farm was, I don't know every farm, so, yeah, so yeah. How, how can I make a choice? Yeah, very difficult salmon. Just eat mackerel. The last salmon, you catch yourself. <laughs> the last salmon I ate uh, was caught by a friend of mine from South Africa who had come over, and he was he was fishing on one of our local rivers, and he kept he caught a couple of salmon, but he kept one really nice clean salmon, so. Wow. That was the last bit of salmon I ate. Was uh, just a, mm. a few months ago. Um, just sort of getting towards wrapping up now. 
I want to go back back to hunting. We you started talking about rabbits. We've talked about fish. You did mention going stalking a stag, but we didn't get really any detail on that. Now, it's it is it shouldn't be different because a life is a life, but there is something different the way in the way that you feel. I think between shooting rabbits and shooting a stag, just because of the majesty of that and the, the stature of it and the size of it draws something out of you even though it's still taking a life how was that experience for you it was really different i mean i don't know whether i could speak for other people because um it was linked to my experience so the rabbit was the beginning and by the time i went after a stag even though a stag is actually arguably easier it's a bigger mm-hmm. target mm-hmm. um i'd done a bit more rifle shooting and i was much more confident in my own skills um and I wouldn't have gone after a stag unless I was. So um, so I was feeling a lot more um, in control of myself and my emotions. And I'd thought about what I was doing. Um, and I also went with my father, which was quite a difficult decision because I had to think, you know, am I trying to impress? Is there something in this book where I'm trying to prove what a girl can do and impress my dad? Um, but towards the end, you know, um, I'd been through so much. Um, it'd been my, my own personal development, and I didn't, you know, uh, it was nice to go with my dad, but it was about my experience, and you know, there's that sort of element of growing up and realizing only you can take responsibility for it. And when I shot the stag, I felt I wrote in the book defiant because there was this beautiful creature, and I felt gratitude for the meat I was going to eat, and I felt. Uh, you know, I obviously understood that that animal had lost its life, but I also felt like I have done this and I'm not going to feel sad or apologize for it because I'm part of this. I'm sort of, I'm, I was sort of standing up to nature. I'm part of it, but I'm also a human and I did it. And I explained that in the book, hopefully slightly more eloquently. (laughs) Um, But I remember writing it and thinking, oh, I better write here how sad I was. And I thought, well, I don't feel sad. I felt defiant. And also in that moment, you also, when you shoot a stag, you know, you still got to growlick it and get it off the hill. Mm -hmm. So you can't sit down and get too weepy because you've got a job to do. Mm. It's about participating, (laughs) Uh, participating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's quite businesslike. You've got to, and you still got to really concentrate because you still got a gun to make safe and things. So, you know, it's, um, uh, and, and and also, I suppose, the experience of being out in that wild, in that landscape, you know, the mountains, um, it's such an amazing day. And, you know, you're really, you're in it all day, you know, in rain and shine and uh, and you're crawling around. And there's that feeling of being, uh, it's quite heightened senses because you have to be, because you have to be quiet and you have to know what you're doing. So there's that feeling of that bringing you closer to nature as well. I'm I'm really yeah. pleased that you said that because uh, pleased that you said that from someone who didn't start doing that from you know you could crawl and you're already hunting because yeah. we we've uh, my brother and I have had this discussion before which is that when you hunt you see more and it, it's very hard to explain that to somebody who's never hunted they said well I walk the same hills as you and I, I see stuff so no but you're I'm sorry but you're not quite seeing it the way that I'm seeing it because you're not you're there like as a visitor you're spectating if you will 
Whereas, yeah. like you've just you've just described it, you're, you're participating and everything's heightened and you see more. Yeah, there, there is um, a writer called Michael Pollan. I don't know whether you've read I don't him. Know. But- yeah, he's written a book called The Omnivore's Dilemma, and there's a chapter where he goes and shoots a pig, and he describes it as um, the same feeling as being stoned. <laughs> and he he looks into it, and it's a great chapter. I, I um, recommend you to read it. And I definitely found that when I was, and I went out quite often and didn't get anything. That's part of hunting. It's important mm. to say that. So I spent quite a lot of time like lying in ditches as the dawn came up and listening for the birds and is that a warning sign and what's that smell and what's the wind doing and trying to understand it. So it definitely gives you a greater sense of nature and it makes you think about humans in general. You would have had to have that all the time in order to stay alive. Mm -hmm. But now, of course, my senses are about my iPhone and, you know, using my human sense for different things. And I, again, what we said about, um, everyone going and shooting animals themselves is unrealistic. You know, you don't you don't need to take a gun and do what we've done to get those feelings. I actually last time last stalking season I took a camera mm-hmm. and um, got with it, and that was different but similar. And mm-hmm. but another way to kind of feel like you're yeah. cl- to, to get close to the animal and get a thrill from it, or even just stalking it for fun to look at it, or or sometimes. Oh, it does be a bit dreamy about it but sometimes you do have those days where you walk out and you hear and you feel mm. it so you don't need to be stalking but it definitely does that to you at certain times i think yeah no absolutely so what's what's next for you are you working on anything that you can tell Red us about Bull. say again <laughs> well i mean you know the beginning of this conversation yeah. we talked about like no one knows where they're meat comes from well not many people know about where the potatoes come from uh, okay i mean it's the most it, it, you know you're putting fungicide on it through the whole growing season every single week if the weather's wrong and um where are things imported from and i mean there's also a question of when we're talking about carbon footprints and ethics um if you uh, if you're deciding to be vegetarian or vegan, there's ethical decisions in the the, the soya that you import, or um, the the labour that picks your salad, or and the waste from food. So I'd like to look into all those sorts of things because I'm an environmental journalist, but I've realised the way to get people's attention is to write about food because uh, that's how we engage with the environment generally. So. Um, uh, yeah, I think I think fruit and veg, and then we'll see. And I'm continuing to learn about stalking and shooting because, like I said, I I did it for 18 months, for two years. But I did I did I never did it as a one-off. It's something I thought I'd learn over a whole lifetime. And I'm not greatly, I'm not. I know you must know have friends and know people who wake up on August the 12th and that's all they want to do. And I actually find it quite difficult and. I don't enjoy all elements of it, but I do enjoy eating game occasionally and I want to carry on exploring this because there are new issues that come in Mm -hmm. that I might not have. I write a book, but I want to always be open to argument and talking to people about this issue. You know, I want to continue writing and talking about it and trying to work it out. Well, I'm going to I'm going to look out with interest for your whatever it is that you you put out with regard to vegetables. We could do another podcast. Yeah. And the interesting thing about it is it's about killing as well. Because the first thing you do is kill 
all the other plants and animals want to eat the plants and animals that you want to eat. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a great point. We, we've brought it up before. Yeah, is we that have, yeah. There is this uh, misperception that if it's a vegetable, then it's okay, you've got no blood on your hands, but there's a, a lot of people really have no idea the amount of impact that modern agriculture has had yeah. on the land and the animals which used to live yeah. there. Yeah, and yep. you can crawl into a hole and not eat. Mm. Yeah. Well, exactly, yeah. Or, or, if you, you, can, ever, ever or wanna... you can ask questions, so that's what I want to do. If you ever want to start a hot topic online, just say vegetables are bad for the environment. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I intend to do. Yeah. Great. Um, Louise, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Yeah, uh, for just... those, I, I, We have mentioned it a couple of times, but for those people who want to hear more about what we've just been talking about for the last hour, your book is The Ethical Carnivore. Uh, I'm sure that you can... Find it on Amazon or wherever yes. your bookstore is. Is, it, is Amazon the best place? That's where we found it. Well, I mean, I would say try go to your independent bookshop. Yeah, we, we don't have an independent bookshop near us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> but um, the paperback's out in July, so oh, okay. um, the hardback's out now, and yeah, paperback out in July. Well, if we do manage to cross paths when we're in the same room, I'm going to have to get you to sign my book. Totally. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for coming on. And I look forward to speaking to you the next time uh, because okay. I think that will probably uh, and possibly be an even more interesting discussion than this has been. Yeah, yeah. great. Thank you. Thanks, bye. Well, that's it for another two weeks. Make sure that you check out the book, The Ethical Carnival. It's it's definitely worth uh, worth reading. Yeah, and if, if, Amazon's the best place to go and get it. That's I think that's where yeah. we got it from. I'm sure that if you've got to the end of this, which I'm hoping most of you have, your mind will be spinning a little <laughs> bit about your food choices and where you source your meat. And if you want to delve into that a little bit deeper, the book is the next place to go for that. Yeah. Um, of course, we mentioned it right at the start. We've got a competition running uh, as we do every two weeks. And for the next two weeks, it is a chance to win a Hornady beer mug and the Hornady ballistic bands, which lets you mark your um, ballistic drop of your cartridge for your specific rifle. And you can either wear it on your person, hang it on a bag, or actually put it around the, the butt of your rifle. So that's what you have a chance to win. And it's going to be on our social media feeds. Check out Facebook, check out Instagram. But you can email us at podcast at paceproductionsuk.com but visit www.thepacebrothers.com all the information you need is on the website also we are now closing the chimpanzees on our uh, website uh, for the donations if you want to donate then just go straight to um, Ivan Carter's Raindrop Initiative just google uh, Raindrop Initiative and, there. and in two weeks time we are going to announce the our our total because yes. we're tallying we up. have well and truly broken the 660 pounds and we will tell you the the, the total amount and uh show you the the donation being sent in two weeks time uh big thank you to data technologies in aberdeen they had a whip around the office and they just donated uh today yes uh, it did. A, a really nice sum of money so everybody's been donating it's been absolutely awesome so we're going to have some very happy chimpanzees I hope so, <laughs> I hope so. Uh, and I think that's it don't forget that this podcast is brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports if you're going to be at Schoon Palace in literally a couple of weekends yeah. time go and check out their stand because we're going to yeah. be on it go, go and check it out and also uh, we will be there on the Friday, Saturday, maybe the Sunday. So if you see us, come and say hello. I also 
I need to give a shout out to all the people commuting and doing all of the shows coming up and down because we know that we've got a few listeners that have been listening to the shows while they've been going to game fairs and uh, are traveling over the weekend. So keep driving safely. Speak to you in two weeks.